0: This means more than sport. And this whole Olympics meant so much more than sport for Japan. Mesdames Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society,
1: the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. <gasps> An Ready. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today?
0: Konnichiwa. <laughs> I say with a tear in my eye.
1: I know. It's sad because it is supposed to be the Tokyo 2020 Games right now, but, yeah. you know, it's okay.
0: And you know what made it very okay? Were our watch parties.
1: They were fun. They were fun. It was so much fun to be able to meet some of you in person that we've been hanging out with on the Facebook group. So we we did have a couple of watch parties on what would have been opening day. And uh, several people came to the afternoon watch party and then or well watch party it was a zoom call so we just kind of sit and sat and chit chatted and then in the evening we watched the film from sydney 2000 which was a really interesting experience
0: because i i had never seen the film and i didn't remember a lot from sydney we talked about this before and what we all said was this film makes no sense It was like they had, they left out so much. So now I want to go back and watch a whole bunch of stuff from Sydney. Yeah. The
1: Sydney movie was really interesting because it was a Bud Greenspan film. So now I want to do some research on that element because Bud Greenspan was, uh, he did so many of the Olympic films was commissioned to direct them. And he really set the tone for how they should be constructed, I guess you would say. And this one was interesting because he does look at a few sports and highlights some big stories from the games. I was surprised to see baseball being one of those stories.
0: For so yeah, and there was no gymnastics and very little track in fact, it was just a. What I did remember from that Olympics was not in that film, so I was like, "What alternate universe Mandela effect movie is this?" But that was great. Actually, I liked that, that I was confused. I guess I like to be confused, <laughs> which is good because I often am.
1: No, but that was a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun to hang out with uh, many of you. And we are going to try to do something for what would be the closing day of Tokyo 2021. So that's August 8th. That's a Saturday. We're still putting that together, but uh, keep an eye out on our socials. That's uh Flame Alive Pod and Twitter and Insta and Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. But keep, keep an eye out on our socials for more information on that. And hopefully we can hang out again. And speaking of hanging out with our friends. That's right. We get to hang out with Book Club Claire this week. So excited. Love this. Book Club Claire is back to discuss 1964, the greatest year in the history of Japan, how the Tokyo Olympics symbolized Japan's miraculous rise from the ashes by Roy Tomizawa. Take a listen to our conversation. Claire, welcome back. We're talking about 1964, the greatest year in the history of Japan, how the Tokyo Olympics symbolized Japan's miraculous rise from the ashes by Roy Tomizawa. Take it away.
2: 2020 is certainly not the greatest year in the history of Japan, uh, but from what I read in, in the 1964 book, it was seemingly the greatest year, and they kind of hit the sweet spot in Olympics between the recovery from World War II and then all of the things that happened in the later, the 1968, 1972, and so on. I enjoyed this book very much. I thought that having everything out of order was really cool, uh, not just going with, okay, here's how they bid, here's how they got it, here's the opening ceremony, and then day by day. Instead, it was kind of going back and forth, even going as back as far back as uh, what was happening after World War II and the reconstruction of Japan at that time. So. I thought that that was a really clever way to introduce this book and get people into the book without, you know, having to go through the entire process. Like we talked about with the Munich book. So
0: I was wondering what you guys thought of the book overall. I enjoyed it a lot. And I did have that same feeling where I was reading it and almost expecting a through line like they, like we had with the Munich book. And yet it was all these wonderful little vignettes and little, self-enclosed chapters and stories which I thought was like you were saying just a nice way to to tell the story without it being too heavy-handed it was very delicate in a way which I thought was was wonderful and different than the Rome book and different than the Munich book those books felt weighty this felt just lighter and brighter in a way which was fun and different way to approach an Olympics.
1: I'm going to be the grumpy Gus. It took me a little bit to figure out that this was going to be organized by theme. And so the source material on this is Roy's blog, the Olympians uh, co. And that I get. So then, you know, you take all of the these interviews that he did there. And how do you put that together in a book? At the beginning, I thought, OK, we're getting a lot of context. This is really good and putting it into a global sense. Okay, that fits along with the greatest year in the history of Japan. But then, like, we were talking about the Cold War, and all of a sudden, it jumped into Andres Toro's defection story. And I was like, whoa, where is this coming from? And then I realized, oh, it's organized by topic. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And I do think it's a really interesting way to do it. I think at times, some of it worked more successfully than others. And There were topics and stories I loved and then topics where I thought, oh, why are we getting told this and why aren't we getting some of that? So that's that that's where my beef, I guess, with it was I I'm not saying I didn't like the book because I did like the book and it was a nice it was a engaging read and a quick read. But there were times where I stopped and was very puzzled because I didn't understand why we were getting so much information about, say, the Berlin Wall and this tunnel built underneath it, where the payoff on that story was, oh, the tunnel's code word was Tokyo because it was the same year as the Olympics. And the same amount of time spent on that story was spent on what seemed to be a very contentious men's gymnastics all around that I really wanted more of. So there were times where I was like, oh, this is really interesting, but other times where didn't work so well for me.
2: I think combining Allison's point of the book being delicate and yours going, saying that the book wasn't going in depth enough, kind of join with each other. I think they're very related because this book could have been a lot longer than the however many pages, like 270 pages of material. This could have been a giant tome like we've had in the past. And and I liked that it Kind of compelled me to look further into the tokyo olympics where some other books try to cover every single little detail and it gets bogged down in the details where this one is kind of encouraging you even with all the footnotes that it had which is uncommon for for a lot of the books that we have been reading uh there were so many uh quotes and footnotes and you could take all of that information and go okay i'm going to do some more digging and look for all these articles
1: okay so i got a beef about that too this is where my librarian went so most of the other books we've had have had bibliographies roy had all these great footnotes there's no bibliography at the end no end notes so you if you want to go back and do the research you have to flip through every page of the book to find the articles he's talking about and there's no index that that today was a sticking point for me So there's a nice list of everybody he interviewed for the book, but there's no index. And that's not necessarily
0: Roy's fault. I think that's a publisher thing. You know, this was the first time we've read the book after, well, I read the book after we spoke to the author, because we didn't have all of the materials before we had that original interview with Roy. And of course, then that was so long ago, I had to go back in and reread the book. And I heard him talking in my head, which made it much cheerier I think that's why I enjoyed it so much more because he is such an affable wonderful storyteller that I kept hearing him <laughs> in my head and I think that's also what made it lighter to me and not feel so heavy and the idea of the not a bibliography may have been a publishing choice because they wanted it to be more story less reference book
1: then I don't know then why why put the footnotes in at all okay you know I know.
0: Your librarian brain I know, is just exploding. I know. And I'm not
1: saying, you know, like I feel I feel really bad because I thought the writing is good and there are things that are really great about this book, but it's not consistent throughout the whole thing. Where you get this fabulous story about Billy Mills, you get a fabulous story about the Japanese women's volleyball team. I loved that chapter. But then like again with the the men's gymnastics competition, which sounded like it was fascinating. There was just something missing there. Oh, I also love the fact that he talked about the people taking part. I really loved that section where the fact of the games is taking part is enough and really getting into that a little bit more. I thought those were really good stories.
2: What was your favorite vignette in this book? that we read. Um for me, I it wasn't actually a vignette from a specific person, but the section about the Paralympics I thought was very cool and how you know like a lot of Paralympics that come into these countries that don't have a lot of experience with helping their disabled citizens that people suddenly realize oh these these people are you know capable of so many things in sport. And kind of decided to upgrade a lot of the equipment and facilities that they would need to, to put a Paralympics on and, and be influenced by the people around them. But what was something that caught your eye as you were reading this?
0: Seiko. It's so fascinating how Seiko became the timekeeper because now, you know, having grown up in the 80s and the 90s with the idea of Japanese electronics is the pinnacle. And in 1964, that was not the thinking at all, that that role of Seiko becoming the timekeeper was really in doubt, and they really wanted a Japanese company. And it put, certainly, that company and just the the whole Japanese electronics industry on the map in a way that it might not have without the Olympics happening in Tokyo, without them. And now Seiko is the official timekeeper for so many events. You know, you don't even think about who it is. It must be, you know, you see that symbol and that's, and that's what it was. And just Japanese electronics overall is still so superior and and certainly considered superior to many other manufacturers. I loved that story. And then I was like, oh, I have a Seiko watch. Now I feel good about myself.
1: (laughs) I love the fact on that. What were they trying to figure out? Like there was a type of timing. they were just like, well, figure out how to do it. I well, think
0: it was in, the tenths or the hundredths of seconds?
2: Yeah, because they they had been doing it for so long where they had used handheld timers by individual people, which is kind of funny because that's what we use in our grade school track meets. And I hate that job because it's so much pressure on you. But then they were able to figure out how to time it to the nearest hundredth, I'm pretty sure.
0: And the electronic stopping. Yes, with printing el- of the timer. Yeah, the printing of the timing sheets and things that even by the 80s we were taking for granted was all new in Tokyo. And now where we talk about things are timed to the tenths and the hundreds and how close so many of the races are. And that whole idea was born in Tokyo.
1: That was such a fascinating story. And I also, Claire, I I agree with you that the Paralympics portion was really interesting and just a culture shift for japan and how they saw and viewed people with disabilities and it was just really interesting how that came to be and i thought that was a really well told story as well
2: i loved how the japanese were just competing in their regular wheelchairs and other countries were coming in with their fancy wheelchairs and japan was going this is a thing. We can do this. We can have, you know, the I don't know if the wheels were sticking, you know, they were slanted at this point, but you know, those kinds of things had not been considered or conceived at this point.
0: Just the whole idea that people who are in wheelchairs and have other disabilities were so capable that they shouldn't just be shut away and were some shameful secret for the family, that they can of course, be a part of society. But for Japan, that was a huge, like you were saying, Jill, culture shift. And that the Olympics and the Paralympics could do that for so many just ordinary people and open doors for them was really moving to realize, you know, we sometimes sit in our little bubble and don't think about how the refugee athletes, or in this case, the disabled athletes, really affect the general population that they're representing and that was just that nice little like yeah this this means more than sport and this whole Olympics meant so much more than sport for Japan I have a question did you
2: know that Andres Toro was featured in this book when you interviewed him yes because I did not and all of a sudden I started to read and I'm going that sounds really familiar (laughs) It was It was not like two weeks after, I think it was your second airing with him. And so I thought, oh, it's the same guy. So I thought that was very interesting to hear that story two different ways. Okay, going into the athletes that were featured, which of their stories, because I guess we all kind of talked about non-athlete stories, but which one stuck out for you? I thought mine would have had to have been I love that Bob Hayes had a cross with Joe Frazier and almost could not compete in his race because he didn't have a shoe. I thought that story was cool. There's a couple others that I had, but that one really stuck out. What, What kind of stuck out for you between the athletes that were competing?
0: You know, what's so funny to me is that the athlete stories are not the ones that stuck with me. It was the non-athlete stories, you know, the families and the whole story, of course, the crown prince and the crown princess, just, you know, how I am with Olympics and royals that stuck with me. And I don't know, maybe it's because we talk so much about athletes and we see so many of their stories that the not athlete stories is what I found so fascinating and that he was able to weave them in, in a way that didn't feel stuck in. It felt like, of course, we need to talk about the royal family of Japan, because now there's this wonderful crown prince and crown princess who are now the former emperor and, and empress. And so that was all happening. I was reading that story as he was stepping down. So it was kind of like the. Be- I was reading about the beginning of his reign at the end of it. So that really stuck with me. But the athlete stories, they didn't hold me in the same way. And I think just because it was familiar as opposed to some of these other things like the timekeeping and the Royal family that were so different than and so unique to this Olympics.
2: I don't know. I kind of enjoyed the stories. I've got, you know, Billy Mills. I I knew very little about that story, but to win the 10 K and not be from an African country or originally from an African country, that that takes a lot to, in order to get that done. So the fact that he was able to do it, as well as deal with all of his trials of, during the beginning of his life, and the Lake Washington Rowing Club, how one of their guys was coughing up blood, and had to, and almost got them completely out of the competition, but they managed to have a rep-a-charge uh, and still get in, and they got a bronze medal from it. And uh, what
0: is it with Washington rowers and almost dying in the boats? I mean, we, we have, are obsessed, clearly. Yeah, we had that story from the boys in the boat where the uh, the big stroke just, like, passed out in the middle of the race. What is going on with these guys? Yeah. I'm going to have to yeah. mother them all. They make me worry when they do that.
2: Yeah. Maybe it's just because I don't get to interview all these cool athletes
0: like you guys get to. Uh, that, that <laughs> that must be were, we're just, you know, we're so cool. I I don't know how that happens.
1: <laughs> one of the stories I thought was really like devastating was the very first one, the judo story.
0: Oh yeah,
2: yeah, that was the first story. Uh, it featured the match between Anton Giesink and Akio Kaminaga of Japan, and the fact that. They go through all of this at the very beginning of the book and the Japanese judo athlete loses. It's like, that seems to be a very interesting way to start the book is have one of the athletes featured lose their match. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But yes, that story was, was very interesting, uh, not just because of the loss, but because of the things that were
1: surrounding it. Right. It must have just been devastating to be the one. I mean, Japan was sweeping the medals for judo, which it, national sport there. But to be the one who on both sides, to be the one who lost the match in your home country, but to be the one who defeated the home team player, the hometown player, and showed that judo was a truly international sport now, that it wasn't one country dominating. Yeah,
2: reminds me a lot of Chinese diving, how there was one year where they almost swept until the final competition and then the Australian diver took gold. That was within the last 10 years, I want to say. 2012, maybe even 2008, I'm not sure, but it kind of reminds me of that. Oh, I do have to mention, once again... Detroit was vying to host an Olympics. This is probably the second time we've covered it in a book, but I have seen it so many times, and it just boggles my mind that they were trying to get an Olympics, especially during the 60s, and what would have happened. And I've talked about that. I think I talked about that with Munich. So they must have vied for 64, maybe even 68, and 72. Yeah, it's just insane how... Out of all the cities in America, Detroit was the one that wanted it the most,
0: it seems like. And what's so funny is the city that was awarded an Olympics was the winter in Denver in 76. (laughs) And they're like, oh, wait, no, we don't want it. (laughs) It Yeah. What
1: is going on there? Detroit bid nine times. (gasps) They're the city that has, I, I believe they are the city that has bid the most and never ever got it. So they started bidding in 1940 and bid for everything until 72.
2: Wow. That would have been so weird. Can't imagine. All right. Uh, Going with Americans, I thought that the lighting of the cauldron was very cool, I thought personally. They had a boy that was born on August 6, 1945, Yoshinori Sakai. He was born in Hiroshima on that day that the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima and he got to light the cauldron. But I thought that the one quote that Roy Tamizawa got from an American, Edwin Sidensticker, he said it was, quote unquote, unpleasant to Americans. What do you think about it in hindsight?
0: I'm kind of surprised Avery Brundage let it happen.
2: They probably didn't tell him Uh,
0: clearly because he was so against politics and sport and had been really pivotal in preventing any boycott in 36. And now we're on the other end of world war two and coming back to Japan and Japan is making this very definitive political statement by choosing this child and, and making that connection to Hiroshima and I don't know if the IOC just didn't know, or that uh, that that was the first thing I thought of was, oh my God, did he blow a blood vessel when he realized what was going on?
2: I wasn't going to mention Avery Brundage this
0: time. I'm sorry. It just had to come up again. I won't mention him again. I'm sorry.
1: You know, I didn't necessarily think of it as political as much as historical and that is kind of an opening ceremony where you explain your some of your history to the world and tell your story and that's a very sad sobering part of their history and sobering on many of accounts for the fact that the the, the fact that the war had gotten so bad that the United States felt they had to drop the bomb the fact that uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were basically, you know, blown off the face of the earth, almost. And the fact that they rose from the ashes. I mean, when I was in Hiroshima, which is now like 2007, I was just amazed at how vibrant of a city it was. It was one of my favorite stops in, in Japan. And, and it was just amazing how quickly it had been rebuilt, in a sense. And this is also at the same time where we were still dealing with 9-11 here in, in the United States, and the World Trade Center was nowhere near being rebuilt. And you think, you look around, you looked around at Hiroshima, was like, wow, they really got it together. And they said, let's, let's get this back. And and I think that's part of this book is the whole fact that Japan kind of said, oh, we're pulling ourselves together World War 2 was devastating and learned a lot of lessons, I guess you could say. But we're going to move forward and we're going to become great. And they did in so many other ways.
2: I am looking forward to seeing and if this, on the date of this recording it would have been in 3 days how the opening ceremony for 2020 because usually you know you, you like you mentioned it covers history of the country that's hosting how is japan going to cover and how much was japan going to cover was it going to go all the way back to you know the the time of their samurai or were they going to only go back a couple hundred years it's it's kind of interesting to see how they would approach the empire in the early 20th century so that's it's curious for me to to think about how they are going to approach that
1: it kind of makes me want to go back and try and watch the Sochi opening ceremony because there was so much about that history that I didn't know. I don't know a ton about Russian history. So it was very interesting to see what they chose to put on the stage and explain to the world. And I think they did it, if I remember correctly, they did a lot of like, here's our great literature. Here are some of our great accomplishments versus, you know, nobody's going to put a song and dance to the gulag.
0: Well, they did include kind of a, a timeline where they, they went through the, you know, the great czars and the great imperial courts. And then there was this little section, which was everybody in gray dresses and kerchiefs and kind of this very mechanical music, kind of like, oh, we are the working class of the great Soviet Union. It was very odd. And I remember the announcer saying, oh, this is how we're dealing with Soviet industry. Like they were very uncomfortable looking at it. So yes, I agree. it will be interesting to see what Japan is doing.
2: Have we covered everything that we need to cover? We talked about this being a light book. It's probably going to be a light review for this book.
0: The one thing that I thought was interesting is now we've covered Rome, Tokyo, and Munich which were, you know, the three Olympics, and we talked about it too when we, we talked about those Olympics, kind of welcoming the Axis powers back into the world stage and saying you're, again, part of this world community. And this, I mean, obviously Munich had its tragedy. This almost felt of the three, the most joyous in a way, even more so than Rome, like that Rome was hot and people were, this just felt like, Again, what he was delicate and light, and people were really enjoying themselves at this Olympics.
2: There was some sort of positive spin that was written in this book. This was kind of the period between the World War transition and the protests and the boycotts and the Cold War coming through, where Japan kind of just took hold as a country, as a whole, and said, We are going to make a change here. For the better and they didn't have to deal with any political issues coming in like for munich munich had the same idea okay we're going to unite and present ourselves as a different germany but then the external issues came seeping in and and kind of tarnished that legacy japan didn't have to deal with that so in the end everybody thought these were fabulous Uh, we got so many awesome things out of it we talked about seiko already but the Shinkansen and uh, started because of all of this and just the promotion of Japanese industry and technology kind of started because they needed to propel themselves for this Olympics. And then once the Olympics were done, they never stopped. So it's a good way to, to think about it where it's, it's a joyful Olympics because there were no external issues yet coming in, but the people
0: in the country were also creating a positive atmosphere. I feel like Melbourne, Rome, and Tokyo are almost have become the Olympics I would have wanted to go to because it's before some of the the heavy politicization of the 70s, before the big heavy duty money starts in the 90s. And it's just this it feels like the sport is just about the athletes. I mean, yes, we have all the Cold War stuff and yes, we have, you know, those politics, but it feels like the community was really involved in these Olympics. You know, the ordinary citizens were showing up at the stadium. They didn't have to buy the tickets three years in advance. They didn't have to, you know, plan it all out and, and budget and schedule like a military operation. It was just, oh, let's go to a race. And I miss, I guess I miss that in a way, even if it's not really true, I miss that ideal of it. Well, and
1: this is also kind of like Tokyo's reemergence onto the world stage. And you get that you know with this Olympics, you really felt that like with Seoul in 1988 that was them coming onto the world stage again, same with Barcelona really turned and got to, propelled into being a more global city. And I think though that underlying feeling really helps. And the way Roy told it like in this delicate uplifting manner really helps
0: underscore that, that theme. It also gives me hope for 2020 or 2021 now that the Japanese are going to pull this off. They did it once. They're going to do it again. It's going to be fantastic and we're going to feel good coming out of it.
2: I cannot wait. And this, we might need to insert right away, but once a high profile author puts out a book about the COVID-19 and that the actions that had to take place for the olympics once that gets published i am putting that on the top of our list because i want to read that and be like i hey we were there guys we experienced this you know jill and i had tickets and everything and we had to change it all because of this and we can like keep that book and pass it down to our grandchildren and say this was us guys (laughs) so yeah i i am also looking For obvious reasons, I'm also looking forward to 2021.
1: I'm really glad we got the opportunity to read this. We heard from listener Don, who also loved it and loved the narrative method of bouncing back and forth between themes and sports and thought that was a really smart way to do it, which I would agree with. It's It's a very unique way to do it. And that made this book even more interesting. So Claire, what are we reading next time? our next book takes us to a
2: contemporary athlete, his autobiography. He is from India. His name is Abhinav Bindra. And the book is called A Shot at History, My Obsessive Journey to Olympic Gold and Beyond. Uh, you can find it on the Amazon. That's where I got my copy. I'm really looking forward to once again, reading about an athlete that's not uh american and kind of hearing about some more contemporary olympic events
1: excellent i'm super excited about this abhinav is a a shooter and he won gold in the 10 meter air rifle in beijing 2008 he's india's only individual olympic gold medalist so he's kind of a big deal over there and uh i'm really excited to get a different perspective on olympism Definitely. I'm looking forward to reading it, and I hope everybody else does, too. Thank you so much, Claire, and we are looking forward to having you back in the fall to talk about A Shot at History. Thank you so much, Claire. Be sure to get your copy of A Shot at History by Abhinav Bindra with Rohit Bridgnath. There are a couple of versions of the book, so we're going to read the updated 2017 version, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if there's much difference between the versions anyhow. But uh, look for your copy at bookstores and libraries, and we will discuss it in October.
0: Better that I read about shooting than I attempt it. Maybe. <laughs> All those around me will be happy to know I'm only reading about a weapon-based sport. Not
1: participating. Maybe you'll be inspired. All I can say is
0: wear a helmet if I am.
1: (laughs) All right, let's move on to our team update.
0: Welcome to Shook
1: Our archivist, Terry Hedgepith, has started her own museum and archives consulting business, which is called Terry Hedgepith, LLC. So we will be on the lookout for more news about that. But congratulations, Terry. Dr. Kristen Kime was on an episode of CoopCast talking about setting your mental frameworks. Our sports historian, Victoria Jackson, was also on a podcast. She was on the Intercollegiate talking about how college sports has lost its way.
0: Yeah, when we had her on, we had a side conversation about college sports. because it's obviously not our focus. And she was so interesting just in that. So I'm curious to go back and and listen to this episode with her.
1: Yeah, and she's been publishing a lot and talking a lot lately about uh, college sports because of all of the budgetary cuts and uh, team cuts happening at the college level due to the pandemic or supposedly due to the pandemic. So we will have links to both of those shows in the show notes. Uh, Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. I saw on LinkedIn that David Holobecca, the head of projects for the Tokyo Olympic Stadium, said that they co-signed a $120 million contract, which covers the period 2022 through 2030 for use of the national stadium. So they've got plans in place for a legacy.
0: Well, that's helpful. Let's hope so. Speaking of legacy, I just realized we get to listen to our Tokyo 2020 music for another year. So that's <laughs> going to soothe my soul because I love that little music <laughs> intro. You know, we need some Beijing music pretty quickly. I know. We got to work on that. So
1: on the list. We'll have that soon because I'm sure we're going to have more and more Beijing updates, especially, you know, starting and we in the...
0: noticed how they were kind of slight. We were missing them. Yeah. So I'm sure the listeners are too. So we've we'll got to keep an eye on that.
1: Uh, Let's move on
0: to some IOC news. Flora Isava Fonseca, the first woman elected to the IOC and to the IOC Executive Committee, died this week at the age of 99. She was amazing. She competed for Venezuela in show jumping in 1956 and competed in all these other sports and was a huge force in both Venezuelan sports and women's participation in sports. And t issued a statement, and he said, the entire Olympic movement will remember her as a personality with a great human touch. That's very sad. I'm sad I never got to have lunch with this woman. She just, I've been watching some interviews with her, and she was just an absolute force. With a chignon.
1: Our condolences to her family and to the Olympic family on what is a a tremendous loss and somebody who had a great impact on the Olympic movement. So we're going to go back to uh, last week's episode for uh, the IOC session. You know, we, oh, oh, we've got to talk about our new nickname.
0: (laughs) So Kathy Freeman, who lit the cauldron at Sydney, who is also uh, a gold medalist at that Games. Was doing an interview about that cauldron lighting because there was a whole kerfuffle because the thing didn't the cauldron didn't move the way it was supposed to. And in this interview, she referred to John Coates as Coatsy, Love which got it. us both very excited. So from now on, we have Bach and we have Coatsy. That's right. So excited. He needs a nickname. We love him too much for him not to have a nickname. I know.
1: So, uh, Coetzee got elected as VP, but there were more elections and we didn't mention them and that's, uh, you know, we should not neglect the fact that there are, are plenty of other people taking, uh, positions within the, the IOC and that were, uh, that are joining the IOC as members. So. Also elected as VP to the executive board is uh, Mr. Ser Myung from Singapore. And he and Kootsie replace Professor Ugor Erdner and Mr. Juan Antonio Samaranch as vice presidents. Now, this is Juan Antonio Samaranch. Antonio
0: Samaranch Jr. That's right. So, yeah, Juan uh, Antonio Samaranch is not still on the committee like weekend at Bernie's.
1: <laughs> okay, I, I, you know. I would not have been surprised if it was in his will to make that happen, if possible.
0: Well, he has his son there. Oh, maybe it's like a clone. It's not really his son. No, it's
1: his son. I've seen him. Sad, sad to burst that bubble. Come on. Also, uh, on the uh, elected to the executive board were Mrs. Michaela uh, Kojwanko-Dworski and Mr. Gerardo Vertine. And they are replacing uh, Mr. Sergei Bubka, who had an eight-year term on the board and that beca- came to an end. And then uh, Mr. Ser Myung Ng, who was elected to vice president, one of them replaces him.
0: Oh, for a second, I thought Sergey Bubka, who, form- who is a gold medalist from 88 mm-hmm. in pole vault, needed two people to replace him because he was so amazing
1: no no one one moved up to vp so he had to get elected and sergey bubka uh his term ended so he had to get replaced the five new members of the ioc include three women mrs maria de la caridad colon renez from cuba mrs Kolinda Grabar Kitarovic from croatia princess rima bandar al Sayud from saudi arabia uh, Mr. Batishing Batbold from Mongolia. And then Sebastian Coe, who is elected as a member who holds an international federation function because he is president of world athletics.
0: It's Lord Coe to you. Uh,
1: nobody. I remember I was reading some some news and, and it's just like, oh, Sebastian Coe finally got into the IOC. Lord Co. Ko. Lord Co. is on. Uh, some other games news. Qatar wants to bid for 2032. They've officially Why? put in <sighs> because maybe they think, well, hey, they've probably got some money to burn, but maybe they think that by the time 2032 is selected, everyone will have forgotten how they hosted the World Athletics Championships in and 2019
0: passing out left and right,
1: right with the marathon starting at midnight and nobody in the stands, that was, that was bad. That was hard to watch because there was nobody there. They did have an air-conditioned stadium, which I think helped, but I, I don't think they could do it. And they they were hosting this stuff in uh, October. They had to host the championships in fall, and, and I remember Deanna Price saying that it really upset kind of the balance of training because it was so different from other years. And we kind of got this in learning about – Tokyo, 1964, too. I think this was Andres who said it was really hard to train for Tokyo because he kind of overtrained. And if the games had been held earlier in the year, he would have been in peak form and then just went a little, little too much, a little too long.
0: Well, yeah, I don't think we'll be going to Qatar in July. No. Oh. I mean, can you, I don't even know why this is on the table.
1: I don't either, unless they want to try to host a Youth Olympic Games.
0: But, I, I mean, I, I don't
1: know. I don't know. I think they want to be bigger in the world event stage, I would imagine. i, I Do just... they
0: just want the athletes to burst into flames? Like, that's going to be their headline? Well, their, their mascot would definitely have to be, like, somebody with a flaming head. <laughs> Old flamey. <laughs> Fire starter. Boom.
1: <laughs> so we'll see about that and see how long that lasts. So they're hosting the World Cup in, uh, Qatar is hosting the World Cup in 2022. So that will be an interesting test to see how that
0: goes. How many people burst into flames? We'll see. Don't know.
1: Last week, we talked about a Pierre de Coubertin drawing of the rings that went up for auction. It sold for 185,000 euros, and then they had to pay uh, 27% costs on top of that. So the total was 234,950 euros. That's a lot of rings.
0: It is, you know.
1: That's almost 47,000 euros per ring.
0: Remember my idea about the different colored diamonds, and you'd have a set of five five rings? Yeah, yeah. I could actually buy that for that much and many euros. (laughs) Very true. Also,
1: there's going to be a whole slew of documentaries coming out. And I'm sure a lot of this was timed to be around Tokyo. But the even with the postponement, they're not going to postpone these documentaries. So we've got uh, an HBO documentary called The Weight of Gold that talks about depression related to the Olympics. There's a documentary coming to Netflix at the end of August to coincide with what would have been the Paralympic uh, Games start. It's called Rising Phoenix. So it's a story of the Paralympics
0: history. Well, today, as we're taping, is the anniversary of the first Stokes-Mandeville Games.
1: Oh, is it really? Yes. Oh, that's cool. So I do want to uh, watch this Netflix documentary. That'll be big.
0: I've seen the ads for it, but I didn't realize what it was about, so thank you.
1: And then if you're in New Zealand or can access New Zealand's Sky Sport 3, on August 13th, they're premiering a documentary about 100 years of the silver ferns, which is New Zealand's Olympic team.
0: Can somebody send this to us?
1: I don't know. Well, I I found out about this from Dr. Michael Warren. I actually saw this because
0: I followed the New Zealand Olympic team. And they posted on Instagram the um, trailer for it. It looks so good. So if anybody in New Zealand can get us a copy, I mean, I'll buy it. I'm not trying to be like a pirate or anything. I just just want to be able to see it. I just want to be able to see it. Yeah.
1: If you do end up being able to watch any of those movies or if you're watching anything else that's Olympic related, let us know what you're doing and what you're thinking of it. Because
0: there's a lot of stuff out there now. Right, because so many people were planning, oh, we'll release it in, like, just like their Olympic Oreos, which I still can't find in my store. Uh-oh. They have s'mores flavor. They have apple pie flavor. But no Olympic Oreos. Hmm. Sounds un-American. I'm not, I'm not okay with this, Nabisco. I want Ted Ligety standing there in his paper cutout holding my Oreos. You know well, we'll Ted keep Ligety? hoping.
1: Maybe, they, maybe they'll, they're maybe they still looking for the Ted Liggety cutout in the back room.
0: Well, did you know Ted Liggety and his wife had twins?
1: I did see that. And uh, he also has a broken wrist.
0: Yeah, but more importantly, he better name them Hot and Diggity.
1: For their sake.
0: I would <laughs> not want to be Hot Liggety.
1: Would you want to be? Wait, okay, think about that. There's Hot Liggety and then Diggity Liggety.
0: That is perfect. (laughs) They would never get in trouble because you'd be like, hot diggity. So you can't even get mad at them. It's perfect.
1: Well, I hope for their sake that did not happen.
0: Well, you know, maybe I wouldn't think of these things if I could find the stupid Oreos.
1: Mm, Well, maybe we should call it a day and uh, you can get out to, to hunting again.
0: I'm hunting for Oreos. (laughs) And you know, the weapon of choice would be a glass of milk. (laughs) Just lure them in,
1: place glasses of milk in proximity. (laughs) Well, here's to hoping you catch some. Uh, And that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, Let us know what you thought of 1964.
0: Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208 flame it we're flame alive pod on twitter and insta and keep the flame alive podcast group on facebook
1: next week is going to be a fantastic show we are learning how to pass the baton in athletics relays with olympian andrew rock so don't miss that one that was a great interview and so as we go out to music from archdale thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the flame alive
0: moving I start the recreation of what's
1: inside
2: I thought that story was cool.